Good morning guys and welcome to another edition of Morning Coffee, incredibly two weeks after the last edition and I don't know, entirely when I said it would be, it's kind of remarkable really. Uh, once again, I'm sitting downstairs in the kitchen at Big Punch Towers, staring out over a darkened garden, although I'm pleased to say, he said, I'm starting to sound more like my granddad every day, that yeah, it's actually getting lighter, like I get to leave the house for work every morning and yeah, incredibly, there's sunlight. I get to come home at night and there's a few minutes of sunlight as well. I feel less like a horrible troglodyte or, I don't know, some kind of nocturnal beast. It's lovely. Like, I, I forget how much I miss it. The year is just long enough for me to forget what summer is like each year. It's always long enough for me to forget what hay fever is like each year. And then my eyes start kind of falling out and the general... <laughs> oh my God, it's horrible. But hey... I'm getting ahead of myself. What's good for now is that the sun is shining, kind of a jogger just ran by in silhouette, and I'm sitting here with a cup of coffee. I think sticking to the new schedule is is pretty good, and it's good for me, at least. And I think just in general, like everything has become a lot more organised of late. Now, I think part of that is maybe due to a conscious effort on my part to better control the work I do and to better... I don't know, keep track of all the various plates spinning and, and other, but you know, on a more practical level, I, I got myself um, like a, an organizational app, which I think uh, Nick recommended. It's called um, Asana and it pretty much runs my life now. It's nothing more than a way of, you know, you just create a task and a date, uh, you know, when does it need to be done by, you can have the team involved, so everyone in big punches on it. I know Lucy uses it to organize her side of things. But I've been using it just to keep track of you know, all my various all my various little jobs and stuff. Because a big a big thing that was getting to me around the time I was ill, which I think you know had to go hand in hand with it. But I was getting so kind of stressed with the amount of stuff I was trying to do. Um, you know, my writing, um, you know, big punch stuff, the actual just nitty gritty of running running a business and all that, and. Um, I'd have this thing where if an idea or an idea for like, a, if I suddenly remembered a job, it would kind of like, or a task I needed doing, it would suddenly leap into my mind and then I couldn't do anything about it. I'd be like, well, now I'm trapped. I'm doing something else. How, when am I going to sort that out? And it would always be a source of panic. And I was essentially just kind of, you know, having a you know little stress incident, which is kind of freaking out. Didn't really know how to process that. But um, I never trusted myself to remember stuff. And so... Uh, the beauty of having this little app is that I can just kind of, whenever I remember a job that he's doing, rather than thinking it has to be done right now and the world will end if it isn't done right now, I I just add it to, add it to you know the old schedule, add it to the old calendar, and then it's there for me. And you know, as you may have guessed, um, because it's morning coffee, I have a day off today, and today is going to be pretty productive. The um, as I sit at the kitchen table, I'm actually staring, and this is where it's going to get audio, audio order, audio visual. Now, I'm rubbing something in front of the mic. I sounded weirder when I said it out loud. Uh, it is a wooden disc with a plastic cylinder glued to the center and a hole in the middle. And this is a little uh, project I've been working on for a while. Uh, and Or rather, I've been thinking about for a while and now I'm finally kind of visualizing it. But basically, I had been wanting for ages to make a model of the Empyrean. 
the Afterlife from Afterlife Inc., which uh, I'm hoping some of you are familiar with. If not, you can get pictures of it on the Afterlife Inc. website, which is www.afterlife-inc.com. Shameless plug. But it's essentially a kind of Dante-esque, multi-leveled, uh, uh, bizarre structure, like made of gold. It's uh, discs on top of discs, all organized around a kind of central shaft. And victory sip and uh, this thing just kind of floats in an endless white void and partially just because it would be a fun project and also because I wanted uh, to update uh, the display of on our table for when we go to conventions I decided to finally you know stop thinking about it and actually do it now I don't have a lot of modeling experience uh, I don't have you know it's not like I've ever really successfully made things. I used to do, I used to do Warhammer back in the day, uh, uh, until, well, I don't know, I always had a mixed experience with Warhammer because I never really played it. I never really understood the rules, but I would collect, uh, you know, the armies. I would kind of paint my models. And I think the problem was that like my friends who were into it had been doing it for so long. It was kind of impenetrable. Like I just didn't, I didn't know how to get in or how to, you know, make myself welcome. Uh, but I used to enjoy painting it. And I know probably the most negative experience I had with that, and I think what may have finally killed it, was that I used to go to... Uh, I used to go to Cribs Causeway with my uh, family, which is a massive shopping centre just outside of Bristol. Uh, and an overabundance of clothes shops, which has never really been my thing. And, oh, grief, I just... I did not understand. Like, I'm okay with shopping. Like, if you want, you know, you want to browse, that's fun. But, like, always clothes shops. It's just, once you've seen one, how many do you need? So while my family would be off doing other things, uh, they would kind of dump me in Games Workshop. And it's possible that some of you aren't familiar with Games Workshop, but I assume that most of you are. And it was just the physical store kind of branch of Warhammer brand. And you could go in and there'd always be a little table where, you know, and it, you know, rather than buying stuff, you could sit down and you could do some painting and you could talk to people. And I remember... Uh, I used to go there. We didn't go there very often, but when we did, I would bring my models along and my paints, and um, i just, you know, head along, pick a, take a seat. There weren't many. There was only four, and we'd do some painting, and uh, it was fairly nice and, you know, for a while, and I think everyone, you know, you, you didn't recognise the people there because I didn't live in Bristol, and it would be months between visits, but, yeah, you just go along, and then whatever random group of people were there, you would, um, yeah, you just kind of sit down and you chat and you'd uh, do some painting. And I was, you know, this is me kind of like age, oh, I don't know, early teens at most, I think. And uh, I just, yeah, I remember sometimes it was lovely. Like I remember once going along and just being randomly entered into a little painting competition. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything significant or major, and there was no prizes. It was just like they gave everyone a blank model. I think it was of a Tyranid, which is essentially a, a xenomorph, and these are all works from uh, aliens. And uh, it was like, go for it and just paint, and it was really fun. And then I remember, like, the staff there. Like, if you are... And I'm not generalising against all Games Workshop employees, but they didn't... They were almost rude, I think, on several occasions, where... Like, I was just some idiot little kid. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. And I certainly wasn't very good at the painting, but I enjoyed it. And I remember um, 
I just remember one of them looking at a model I'd been working on, and I'd been using, uh, I'd kind of like customized his face. These were these slightly bigger models they did called Inquisitor. And I was very excited when Inquisitor came out because it was something I could get in at the ground level and everyone I knew was as inexperienced as me in it. But the models were slightly bigger. They were kind of like four inches tall. And there weren't a li- there weren't many. So I think in that initial set, they only put out like 12 models or something. But so if you got one, you had to kind of customize it to make it look, you know, like you, what you wanted it to. Pardon me. And I, uh, I wanted this guy who was a human to have a, a scar. Now at the time I didn't use any of the kind of like epoxy modeling clays, which were popular, but I worked out that if you took blue tack and you sculpted it to a shape you wanted to be, if you then dropped super glue on it, just a few drops would be all you need. It would go rock hard, like it, you know, as, as you would expect. Uh, the problem was it would also kind of, you know, stick to your fingers and you'd have these kind of chunks of blue hanging from your flesh for ages. So I'd done this to the side of his face and I'd made it, I'd made it kind of, um, you know, it looked like deformed, like he'd been horribly, horribly injured or something in a war. And I remember showing it to the guys and they kind of looked at it and they were just, I think I remember the exact words. A guy looked at it with a sneer and said like, why did you feel compelled to do that to his face? And bear in mind, this is like a, I guess he must have been in his 20s, just talking down to a, I guess like a teenage, a young teenager, but also like a kid and also like a customer. And I guess we can have like, you know, you want a frank discussion. You want kind of like feedback and stuff. He was a real, you know, prick about it, frankly. Just kind of, just made me feel really, and he had his cronies around him. And I just felt, I just felt, you know, utterly worthless. I was like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have embarrassed you. I've embarrassed myself. I've brought dishonor on my family. So that was like, you know, maybe like a little sign that things weren't great. And then, yeah, I think the thing that finally killed it was I went in, you know, just because I'd done time and time again, uh, I wouldn't say I was a regular, but I'd certainly been, you know, more than a few times. I went in and I sat down at the table same as ever and I uh, got my little model out and uh, of course when you get the plastic games workshop models when they come in the pack they're all you know in pieces and you have to um, cut them out of their kind of oh there's a word for it but you know they come in like a kind of plastic grid and you take a little you know you trim them out and you whittle off the little rough ends and you glue them together and I just you know without thinking I had a little kind of safety knife in my bag like tiny little thing as part of my modeling kit and I just kind of trimmed a plastic piece off and just kind of gently shaved off a bit of plastic and then put the knife back in my in my kind of crafting kit. And I remember the manager coming over, like, not dragging me, but kind of like, say, come here, you know, kind of whipping me over to a corner. And then like quite imposingly kind of like standing over me and kind of like jabbing in my chest and going like, don't you ever dare bring a knife into my shop again. Like, like I committed like the worst crime imaginable. Now, now, okay, when you say it, when you say it out loud, like on paper, yes, I was a teenager who brought a knife into his shop. In my defense, the place was full of safety knives, you know, little Stanley knives, little tweezers, little kind of clippers. And I was trimming a model to, you know, and I, I think even at that age, I had like this odd moment of like, I'm done. Like, this is not, you know, screw this, screw you. I just wanted to be part of a community. You guys have been nothing but unwelcoming. I'm out. 
And I think that kind of killed it for me, really. I was just like, why am I investing my life in this? And and sadly, that was the end of it. But that was a hell of a digression. But point being is I didn't, that was, that's probably like the be all, that's the limit of my model making experience. Now, I loved making Lego as a kid. I had a great big bucket of Lego. And I loved kind of finding workarounds. Like I'd often, the cartoons I'd see on TV, things I liked, Power Rangers being a prime one, I would make out of Lego. And I'd make the Zorgs out of Lego. And obviously they didn't look anything like it and they didn't have the same uh, colours even because you couldn't get green helmets back in the day. Or pink. And um, But I loved kind of coming up with solutions and like ways of... And the Zorgs you know, just look like horrible, the equivalent of stick figures made out of Lego. But I liked coming up with mechanics and I had lots of like hinges and moving parts and I would make them transform and I I just loved it. And so I quite like the problem solving aspect of having an idea in your head and then finding ways to, you know, make it a reality. So with this background and no kind of engineering experience, I've decided to make an Empyrean model. And before Christmas, I went to... I think it was B&Q actually, and I bought a length of uh, wooden uh, doweling. So it's basically just a, a long uh, wooden pole, it's about 16 millimeters in diameter. And at Hobbycraft, I got a few sheets of plywood. So doing like some calculations, I worked out the size each disc were gonna, was going to be. And uh, I drilled a hole in the center, which was uh, the exact same diameter. So now, as you may imagine, again, it's not the easiest thing to describe in audio format, but you have a central pole, lots of discs with holes on in the middle, and then you kind of slide them on in a in the right order, and you get the shape of the Empyrean. Now, at the moment, the pole is about, you know, five feet long, so we have a very extended Empyrean, but you get the impression. I can cut it down. Um, I do have a power drill. Uh, my experience of using it in the past has generally been mixed. I remember when Lucy and I moved into our first house together. We were only renting. Lucy was doing a, uh, an evening course at the time in creative writing. And uh, she was out with her course and I had decided to hang some pictures like you do. You know, as a standard kind of like homeowner or, you know, man of the house kind of task. Can you hang something on a wall? And I was doing fine. I was going around with like hammer and tack and I was just, you know, hanging pictures everywhere. And I decided I wanted to put a picture up in the kitchen just to kind of brighten it up a little. And the problem was that the spot where I wanted to hang it, which in hindsight was above the oven, uh, didn't, had a particularly tough wall. Like I just could not get a tack to go in more than a few uh, millimetres. So I got the drill out. And my logic was if I drilled a tiny little hole I'd be able to put a little screw in and then that would hang the picture. And, you know, from the outside, you wouldn't know any different. And then, you know, when we leave this place, we can just kind of unscrew it, fill in the hole with a little polyfiller and, you know, job done. No one, no one need know. And uh, so I got the drill out and, you know, I start making a little hole in the wall and the drill runs up against resistance. And again, it's only gone in a few millimeters. So I'm like, Okay, what can we do? So I think most people would have gone, mm, you know, now's the time to stop. Me, I went back and got the masonry drill, like the really, you know, the really tough one, the Vanguard. And I put that in the wall. And that goes in a bit and gets a bit of resistance again. And I'm like, oh, what is this? Why can't I get into this wall? Like if I could just go a little bit further, I could, 
all my problems will be solved. So I start leaning. I'm really, really applying pressure to the to this to this drill. Like I'm pushing and pushing and pushing. And then there's this thunk, like a dunk noise, and the drill pops into the wall. You know, whatever was give, whatever was resisting, bang, it's in. So it's a dunk, and then and I think it's probably the closest I've ever come to having a heart attack because I drilled right into a gas pipe and I I thought I was losing my mind like it was one of the most stressful like and I think legitimately stressful experiences of my life because I knew we had a young couple next door uh, a, you know a conjoined you know semi-detached house and they had a little girl who must have been like a year or so old and all I could think was, I've I've killed myself, I've killed the family, I've killed their little girl. So I'm alternating between running around, opening all the windows, to running back, putting my finger on the hole in the wall, uh, calling the landlord, who is not happy, uh, working out where the gas main is so we can turn it all off. Anyway, long story short, house can blow up, I'm still here, the drill... Um, the drill and I have a mixed relationship. I'm always very careful with it now. And, uh, oh yeah, and, and you know, it's not like this idea of me blowing up a house with, was without precedent because Cheltenham had an odd run of um, weeks during one summer where stuff kept kind of blowing up. Like we had a, uh, there was a, an old lady who was living in a, in a terraced house uh, somewhere in Cheltenham and this made national news because I think there was a gas leak or something and, or a pipe had been cut. I forget the specifics, but her entire house blew up. And because it was a terrace, it's like the front of the house just, just went. Like it was just gone. Like one minute there was a house, the next thing there wasn't. And so you've just got this kind of open box to the world where like, you know, the floor's been blown away. The entire frontage has fallen off. Her stuff is everywhere out in the street. And, you know, and the two houses next door have also suffered damage because it's a terrace, you know, they all kind of support each other. But I think incredibly she had, she wasn't hurt or she only had minor injuries. And I can't remember if she was in the bath or in her bed, but I think whatever she was in, the whole thing got blown out onto the street, which may have helped keep her alive. We also had, I'm really getting off on a tangent now, but I remember that summer I was still working at a school in Cheltenham, Lucy was, that's how we... That's how we met. Obviously, we were working as science technicians. And I heard a rumour. There was a rumour going around that this school I worked at was the largest landowner in Cheltenham or something like that. Because it had a great big sports field right in the centre. It had two great big sports fields. Three, even. had a lot of sports uh, right in the centre of Cheltenham. You know, in what would otherwise have been prime, uh, I guess, kind of real estate, as the Americans say. Like... uh, you know, but of course, the school was built at a time when, you know, people wore top hats and just didn't, you know, it didn't matter if you were just a country gentleman who had acres and acres in the middle of a growing town. Anyway, someone was flying a light aircraft. This is why it was a weird summer. Someone was flying a light aircraft, a little, you know, not not a biplane, because it only had one wing, John, what are you saying? But no, just a little, like, little rig. And something had happened, like the engine had died or... They'd obviously encountered trouble, but it it came down in one of our sports fields, or it tried to at least. It was aiming for it, and 
we were quite surprised to learn because I think I think we could see it coming down. We were quite surprised to learn that really small kind of one person planes like that actually have a parachute. And I don't mean, you know, the pilot put a parachute on and jumped out. I mean, the plane itself had a parachute because it was so small. So if you can imagine a little white, you know, two wing plane big enough for one person hanging vertically down, kind of like its tail pointing to the heavens and uh, a massive parachute coming out the back of it. And then the whole thing kind of gliding down. And I think the pilot was okay, actually, but he was aiming for our massive field, missed our massive field and ended up in a tree in someone's back garden, I think. And um, there was a rather sleepy student who was meant to be on study leave who was uh, woken up by uh, this plane crashing into the back of his house. So happy days. Oh, yeah, and I think a couple of other guys were arrested for apparently building explosive device in their garage or something like that. I, I don't know. It was a weird, it was a very weird summer. Anyway, how did I even get onto this? Oh, yeah, drills, bad, explosions, bad, but I was careful this time and nothing blew up. I also borrowed a little electric uh, jigsaw off my dad and uh, and at some point I want to kind of expand my uh, toolkit, which can only lead to uh, uh, trouble, I'm sure. But, you know, the biggest hang, the biggest kind of problem I'm running up against is that it's not that I don't have the ideas and I do have the ideas and I think I even know how to implement them. It's just a lack of tools. Like I don't have a fixed bandsaw. I don't have anything which would let me cut things at 90 degree angles other than, you know, a ruler and, you know, my eyeballs. So I think that's the only problem. Everything is going to be ever so slightly wobbly, if you know what I mean. Like things are not going to be precise. And I guess that will add to the charm, but I'm having to do a lot of workarounds. So anyway, uh, so we have the main structure. And then I went and bought a load of plastic uh, piping just from a plumbing section at B&Q. And now this is, well, it's like a Gandalf staff, really. I'm looking at it now. It's about six foot long. You know, much more than you need, but you can't really buy it in uh, tiny chunks. And I have sawed that into little five centimeter chunks and glued one of these to each, the center of each of the wooden discs, each representing a different level of heaven. And the idea is, that the diameter, this is where I'm getting very precise now, the diameter of the thick white plumbing tube is bigger than the diameter of the central wooden support shaft. So the idea is that they fit inside each other, it's like a kind of sleeve. So when it's assembled, you won't be able to see the wooden dowel which is keeping the whole thing together. And then, I don't know, like if I've been able to cut the white piping with a, you know, a kind of, atomic precision, then the whole thing would be self-supporting and perfectly flat. As it happens, there is a slight wobble, a slightly rough uh, edge in the white piping. Or rather, it's, you know, it's not quite 90 degrees for cut. So as a result, if you assemble the whole thing at present, it does have a slightly crooked house kind of vibe where the whole thing is wobbling, but I'll find a, I'll find a way around that. But the next step now, and I'm going to be working on this a bit today, so I've just picked up uh, Macon, which is the fourth heaven. Now Macon is the region which is divided halfway between uh, stereotypical notions of heaven and hell. So one half is, in the books at least, covered in a 
thick bank of glowing pink mists. And the idea is that these mists grant visions of your deepest fantasy. When you step inside them, you can spend an eternity in there in oblivion because it's, it's perfect bliss. You have no idea what else is going on. And the other half... Pardon me, that was a big sip. The other half is structured around uh, scary exhibitable notions of hell. So that's where Temperance Jones and his brothers and his fellow demons, or, you know, infernal angels, live. And um, they uh, they torment people who want to be tormented. It's like a service. So these things have to be provided, even if in the notions of Afterlife Inc., those services are a little outdated. So what I've done is I have got a substance called Milliput, which I'd never heard of before, but it is a two-part modelling clay. And the idea is that you have a grey stick of chewing gum and you have a kind of sickly yellow stick of chewing gum. And when you mix equal parts together, kneading them properly, it kind of takes on the same texture as blue tack, which is something I used to model with as a kid when I was, um, you know, when I used to like, I used to make superheroes out of Lego, like, you know, characters of my own creation. And I would always have a character because everyone knows how big a Lego man is. I would always have a character who was like a shapeshifter or made of like goo, like clay face or something like that. And I'd make that character out of blue tack. You just get a great big blob of blue tack and suddenly you've got a shapeshifter. And that was a, you know, pro tip. And, um, so it's the same consistency of that. So it's lucky at the moment that it's not really taxing my slightly limited sculpting skills, but mountings I can do. Like mountings are great. So the effect, and i got to say, I'm so pleased with how this has turned out. When you merge with two sticks together, you actually get like a slightly green uh, paste. And the idea is that it's pretty malleable for half an hour. And then the moment... You know, and then once I kind of, then it starts to get a bit tacky. And within like an hour or so, it's, it's becoming a bit more rigid. And I think uh, overnight is all it takes for it to harden completely. Now, tapping it in front of the mic, it's rock solid. It might as well be, you know, carved. It's, and it's beautiful. And it's really, so basically I have, you know, sorry, to paint this picture with words, half the disc uh, organized around kind of like the central shaft of, of uh, the tower that keeps heaven together. The, the half, which is going to be paradise, is I've covered in a very kind of shallow layer of milliput. And I've just kind of mottled it a bit with uh, my gloved fingers when I sculpted it. I've just kind of like put creases and little textures and contours and a few little peaks. So it's like a very kind of low, uh, l- low level mountainous region. You can just, and you can imagine it just being like a rock under a bare rock underfoot. And when that is done, I'm actually once it's painted, I'm actually gonna have a um I think I might affix uh like a cotton wool. That'll be the um that'll be the kind of misc. So we'll probably just take wisps of cotton wool and put it across the thing. But the other half do is um is much more pronounced kind of um uh mounting ridges and uh I've got to say, like, mountings mountings are fairly easy when you're just kind of working with blobs of little clay and, God, it's fun. Like, I, I've forgotten how much I enjoyed it. And, you know, I spend all my time at a computer, be it editing or or writing. And, and you know, when I'm not doing that, I'm writing in a notebook. Like, all I do pretty much is, is write. And I know my eyes are starting to not thank me for 
spending so much time looking at a screen. So doing something just kind of physical with your hands, um, which isn't, you know, dependent on scaring at electric light is, is kind of wonderful, really. Although that said, I think I did kind of, <laughs> I did kind of screw my head over by uh, focusing a little too closely. So really, there's no kind of winning situation here. So anyway, um, uh, Macon is almost finished. I ran out of Milliput. Uh, Raquia, the second heaven, which is uh, where Nuriel lives, which is basically just a kind of grey mountainous region in its own right. Uh, that's done. It's also one of the smallest heavens, so very easy. Uh, so it's coming together well. And my plan today is to do some kind of, is actually do some kind of nice physical odds and ends to work on these projects. So I've got Shehakim, which is the garden where Anahel rules over and all the various animals live. And I'm going to try something a bit different here. So I need to stock up on Milliput, but I'm also going to buy some flock, kind of like the fake grass powder and uh, some glue. When I was in Hobbycraft last, I saw you could buy like fake water for modeling. So it's like a kind of clear gel that sets in a way that looks like water. So I'm going to experiment with having a lake. I also want to buy a, you know, a cheap little modeling tree so I can stick it on. So it's an ongoing project. And I've got to say, it's really nice to be able to take a break from the other things and, you know, step in to do, do something at such a change of pace. Um, the other thing I'm going to work on today also relates to the Afterlife Inc. kind of display at conventions. Really updating it, overhauling it, and eventually the Imperium model will take will take pride of place. I'm going to make a nice little um, stand for it, maybe with some lighting in it. And uh, following another trip to B&Q, I, I picked up some hardboard and uh, some like 2x4 planking. And the idea is that I want to make a rigid shelf to go at the back of the table because height is very important. It's, it's, it's more visually appealing. It allows us to have like a two-tier effect so we can have books on the back, books on the bottom. So what I've made is a, again, eyeballing a lot of it. It doesn't have that kind of military precision. So there's some, the measurements are a little off, but I, I think that adds to the charm. Uh, I basically made a wooden frame. It's like a box which is open at the back out of these very basic building materials. So that's been glued and tacked. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go along to the House of Fabric or Fabric Warehouse or something in town. And I'm going to get some new red tablecloth. And I'm also going to get some excess, which I can wrap around this weird shelf unit and staple in place. So yeah, it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a masterpiece, but once it's wrapped in fabric and glued, I think I'll forgive a lot of sins. And you won't know the difference. It would just be a nice red fabric block sitting at the back of the table. And we're going to have books on top of it. When Man Made God is finished, we're going to have well, probably a nice little display place for that. We've got, this most, we've got the most incredible uh, independent fabric shop in in Cheltenham. And I know I've been there a couple of times. When um, I've been there with Lucy, because when Lucy made uh, Nuriel, the cuddly Nuriel, which has sat on our table for ages, we went there to get like some nice blue fabric for his skin and it's insane because it looks fairly unassuming from the outside it's just a slightly dilapidated old shop front on Albion Street in Cheltenham but you go in and it is the most eerily quiet place you've ever been in in your life because every wall is lined with uh, rolls of fabric uh, and it turns out that Rolls of fabric arranged in that fashion is the most amazing uh, 
soundproofing. You can imagine, like, there are no echoes. Like, everything is just absorbed instantly. It's a very odd, flat element to the air when you're walking around. And probably the second strangest thing is that you come in and the shop is quite small. It's quite kind of cramped and the corridors are very narrow and arranged in a, a real kind of madman spiral uh, arrangement. Like it doesn't make any sense. But then you descend further in and it is like entering some hidden realm. You half expect to pop out into Narnia because you find what you think is a gap between shelves. And no, that's actually a corridor. And you go in and you, you go further and this happens again and again and again. And then you realise that the style of the building is changing around you. And I think, I assume, like, this is all part of the same building and they haven't just knocked into some abandoned facility next door. But it's so odd because the shop is bigger than the front. It's bigger than the actual building you enter because you are walking through essentially just, like, dead spaces between buildings or something that was once a warehouse which has now been shut down. And it's quite incredible. And I'm looking forward to seeing it again to see if it's exactly as I remember, or whether it was some kind of random fever dream. But no, that's my day-to-day, and uh, yeah, so it's going to be a combination of the practical stuff, which is, uh, you know, coming along great guns and is a lot of fun, and uh, some writing, because I am on an absolute roll at the moment, and it feels great, I've got to say, because I knew we had a, I knew Big Punch was collectively going to have a very busy year this year, and it's mostly with you know, personal grown-up things, like uh, Nick and Ali are getting married in, uh, so ooh, that's embarrassing, September, September. Uh, you know, a lot of our friends are getting married around the same time. Lucy and I are going to be getting married in January, so, you know, we're starting our way down that road of planning, which is which has been a laugh a minute so far, I can tell you. And so we've kind of made a conscious decision to step back a little from conventions to try and make room for ourselves because it's going to be a very busy time and I think one thing we've learned is running yourself ragged making yourself ill is not the way to go about it like yeah we want to be creative and yeah we want to be productive but you want to be alive at the end of it to enjoy it you know so we're going to less conventions this year also um you know thought bubble traditionally traditionally at the end of the calendar year, has been moved to September, which, um, you know, is apparently so they have more sponsorship options, so they have more businesses open in the centre of town, which they can interact with, and uh, it's moving venue. So that's going to be quite a big change for Thought Bubble, and we're not going to be there. It's going to be the first one we haven't been to in ages. And that's simply because it's falling right in the middle of prime wedding territory, you know, and we're like, it's... Nick and Ali are going to be stressed enough as it is and, you know, we're going to be helping as well. So it's not going to be a good time. I think uh, we also consciously said we're not going to do London Super Comic Con. Like you may have heard my thoughts on that in a previous a previous uh, episode, but just for what it was and the costs and the spiralling costs, it just didn't seem worth our while for what had been proving to be a very quiet show, an increasingly quiet show. We were spending more and seeing less return in a way. And it'll be interesting to see how London Super Comic Con survives its move to, uh, oh, it's like the weird business centre in Islington where Kapow was for two years running, which I think is kind of fitting because out of all the shows we've ever done in all the time we've been making comics, I think Kapow and LSCC were the two most expensive ones 
And I think it's telling that they now ended up in the same place. So we'll see. Birds of a feather. Um, so where was I even going with this? Yes. So hence, with uh, a busy year ahead of us, we decided to try and be smarter this year, to try and kind of like be more aware of the work at hand and, and to do it before we enter these kind of periods of intense grown-up living. Uh, so I've been writing like an absolute fury and I've got to say it feels amazing. Um, I credit some of it to this organisational app and I swear I swear this isn't a sponsored podcast. I, I just, it really helped me get my get myself together, get my get my act together. And I know what he's doing. It's not a source of panic. I just know I can space out that work. So after I think Man Made God is coming along well. In fact, I was chatting with uh, David, uh, the artist, today. Uh, he is cracking on as we speak. We got pushed. There was a little bit of a delay over Christmas. So obviously we are going to be slightly behind schedule. I hope that by releasing each chapter as it's completed digitally, digitally, he said, using his words like a human being, uh, to all the Kickstarter backers, we can keep everyone in the loop. I think communication is the key thing. Uh, and of course, I hope everyone is willing to bear with us on this, but we are working flat out on it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's shaping up to be it's shaping up to be something quite nice, actually. I, I can scarcely believe it will be finished. It feels like it's been... It feels like it's been in the background for a long time. And, you know, the stars finally aligned to make it happen. But it's still... You know, it still just seems like a... I don't know, like a... like the, It seems theoretical. It seems like it, it, it will never be a real thing. But it will, of course, because we are... We are ploughing along with it. And we have people who are very much looking forward to it. And I have a physical evidence. It just... I don't think I'll actually believe it until I'm holding a physical copy in my hand. Like, it's it's quite crazy. So, yeah, I have uh, some typing to do. I do most of my writing uh, analog style in my trusty notebook with a pencil. I am absolutely lost if I don't have one of those cheap... Oh, what do you call them? Like the... Not an actual pencil, like one of the ones you click and it sticks out a little never-ending pencil or whatever. Except they do end and you have to throw them away and get new ones. It's heartbreaking. So... Cracking around that. Uh, in terms of BPM, now renamed Extraversal, we're really flipping excited about the new year for the next two years, actually, and the story arc we have coming up. Like, it's been such a a, a good, a positive growing experience for me as a writer. Like, it's a, finding that balance between episodic storytelling that you know, works as an individual issue while also contributing to the greater whole. Like, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Like, there's times where I've looked at it, certainly in the first year, where I think we are still learning the ropes, and I've looked at it and thought, I could have done that slightly differently, or whatever, or here's what I would change if I ever did it again. But it feels like it's getting stronger and stronger, and I know I'm biased because I'm writing it, but it's a joy. It's an absolute joy to work on, and you know, Orb is um, Orb is all written for the year, which is wonderful. Which was one of my goals to be to be nice and organised, and for our artists to never be waiting on a script. Orb is completely in the bag. Cuckoo's is very nearly in the bag for the whole year, and I think you know you're doing something right if you are having the time of your life writing something. Um, I think uh, there's an Eric Larson quote. Eric Larson. 
yeah, I think it's Eric Larson, one of the image chaps. Feel free to correct me if I've got that wrong. There's a quote from him, which I used to have kind of like pinned up behind my, uh, behind my computer, which basically said, if a comic you're working on right now isn't your favorite comic, you're doing something wrong. And that's something I always try to live with. I mean, I live by. I mean, there's times when, there's times when, let's be honest, the writing seems like a bit of a chore. And I think that's a good indication of when something isn't quite right, something isn't quite fitting in. Like I know um, I've been going over one of my Afterlife Inc. scripts and I've been looking at it again. Uh, and because I, do, I write everything in my notebook in pencil and then I kind of type it up to, compute, to the computer, that process of typing it up is an excellent edit for me. It's a chance to revisit this work in the cold light of day and see what works and what doesn't. And uh, I very quickly realised that the five pages of this opening scene I was writing up, I was like, this doesn't feel good to type. Like, there's something not right here. Mm. Another sip. I was like, something isn't right here. And it doesn't feel fun. So I kind of skipped on a bit and I moved to the next scene. And that just, that was just flowing. That just, that was so easy to type up. It was, I think like, as I've gotten more comfortable in writing and certainly with comics and getting, you know, like becoming utterly familiar with the, the, the medium you work in, I've become a lot less wordy. Now, I, I know, frankly, a lot of people would dispute that because my scripts are very dialogue heavy. But if you ever see one of my kind of the script, the thing the artist receives, they were incredibly wordy, like in themselves, like very, very descriptive. And I think it is something I'm improving on. And I think I can say a lot more now while saying less. You know, I think if you can let the art talk for itself, then I think you're onto something. So yeah, so that is, uh, that's great. Like I was able to identify something I needed changing. I'm going to be working on that later today. And like Cuckoo's is proving just a delight to write. Same with Orb. Like it's so sad, but I'm a fanboy for this world we're building. And even if I'm the only fanboy in the world, maybe that's sad, but you know, at least we're making one person happy, even if it's only me. But no, I hope um, if any of you have dipped your toe into the world of extroverse or formerly BPM, we hope, um, I hope you'll give it a try because I, I swear we're so fiendishly proud of what we're building here and it's really building to something special. Like it's not all happening skanks. There is a bigger picture here and we're working very hard on it. Um, you know, for all I'll talk about having a quieter year, we are actually going to be putting out three graphic novels this year. We're doing Man-Made God. We are doing volumes one and two of Extraversal, the collected Years 1 and 2 of BPM. So we're going to be running a very small, a very uh, contained Kickstarter just to get that out into the world. Uh, we're being very cautious with Kickstarter at the moment. I worry that we might finally be approaching peak Kickstarter, just in general, as an industry. I feel need to be a bit kind of smarter and more selective about when we run a project and don't treat it like a magic wand that will solve all problems. So, yeah. That'll be something we're working on. Uh, and I frankly can't wait to get started. Like, you know, this is a quiet year for us and we're putting out set three graphic novels and four issues of 
of extraversal. Like it's in, it's insane, really. Like I, I'd hate to see a busy year. But hey, very much looking forward to a busy day. And thank you for listening. Um, before I sign off, because I have been rambling spectacularly for about three quarters of an hour now. Before I sign off, a little a little update on the graffiti situation from uh, last episode. I was very um, I was very usefully informed by a listener that uh, gratefully usefully I don't know. Anyway, thank you, sir. A listener informed me that graffiti is not in itself illegal if done in a designated area. So it would seem that these two underpasses uh, where this amazing story in paint has been playing out uh, are clearly designated graffiti areas within Cheltenham. Now, if someone went and did those tags on the front of a building, uh, I think it'd be a very different story. But where they are is perfect. Like, that is fulfilling a purpose. Uh, I would, however, like to say that I'm a little, I'm feeling a little uninspired by the graffiti at the moment. I think it has taken a little bit of a downturn. Uh, a new group maybe moved in and one side of the underpass is now uh, covered in very large, but I don't know, I don't want to be cruel guys, but maybe a little uninspired tags, uh, just signatures. They're very big, bold, very 90s, and I think they're lacking a bit of a flair of some of the stuff we've seen before. So need to up your game a little bit, guys. Uh, I would like to give a little shout out to Caviar, K-A-V-I-E-R, who I feel is like the graffiti artist who could, like, or the little graffiti artist who could. He's trying. I think I saw him, actually. Like, I think I saw the man behind the mask uh, spraying his tag and um, while someone filmed him. And, uh, yeah, maybe he's new. Maybe he's kind of like... Uh, getting into the scene, but his little tag is, uh, it's not quite as impressive as the others. And I think he needs to get in there with the colors a bit more. And, uh, cause I think just, just having like, just doing like your little name in, in black paint, uh, one can not even filling it in, you know, I think there's room for improvement there, but I look forward to seeing his career develop. So everyone, thank you for listening to me. The sunlight outside has gone from trying to definitely succeeding. Um, it's bright. I think the day has begun. I'm going to start moving. Um, this has been a Big Punch Studios podcast. Uh, as ever, if you like what we do, be it the comics, be it games like Sandwich Masters, be it these podcasts, these daft little streams of consciousness we do, we do have a Patreon and your support would mean the world. Uh, it's www.patreon.com forward slash Big Punch Studios. There's a link in the description as well. And if you like what you do, any support you could send our way would really mean the world. And we hope we have some great rewards which would make it worth your time. One dollar would not only allow us to continue making all these podcasts and maybe even making more, it would allow us, I don't know, it allows you access to a very exclusive Punch Cask, which is a podcast recorded only for our patrons. So thank you for listening, guys. I hope you have a great day. Keep drinking that coffee, and I'll see you in two weeks' time.